Have you noticed how obsessed we are with self-improvement? We were looking at some numbers this week, and apparently it's projected that by 2022, the self-improvement industry, which includes you know books, speakers, conferences, all that stuff, uh, the net worth of that industry will be $13 billion. That's an amazing amount of money. And I think it makes a lot of sense because I've never met anybody who couldn't find at least one thing in their lives about themselves that they would want to change. Whether that's I want to be more positive, I want to be healthier, I want to be happier. Um, I felt that in my own life. I mean, it wouldn't kill me to lift a weight or two. I'm not going to do that, but I realize that. So we all feel this sense of, man, I want to change. And we go out and we buy a book or two or we subscribe to a podcast or whatever. And we go about trying to better ourselves. And it may work for a little while. Truly, it may. We may see some changes. But then, like another challenge comes our way, another problem, or say a global pandemic hits the world. And we find we really haven't made as much progress, not nearly as much progress as we thought originally. And for Christians in particular, um, I, I wonder if this statistic is, is illuminating in this regard. So Barna is a, is a research group here in the United States, and they partnered with the American Bible Society and released some survey work that they've done. They call it the State of the Bible. And they released their 2020 report, um, and it revealed that the number of U.S. adults who self-report that they read the Bible daily has dropped from four, about 14% to below 9% so far in 2020. So 14% down to 9%, below 9%. And it's interesting, right? During a time where it feels like people would need God's word more and more, given the anxiety and the, everything going on, it seems we're actually engaging less and less. And I mean, I, I get that dynamic. I've, I've found it harder to engage with God at times during this whole thing, to be gracious and patient, to think of others first these last several months. And maybe you can relate. I mean, think about your own life right now. Has it revealed, has this moment in time revealed more or less maturity in you? Are you more or less anxious? Are you more or less angry and frustrated? And I will freely admit that all of this stuff and more have been more apparent in myself than I would like to admit or that I knew about myself. And I ask myself in those moments, can I really change? Is this change I'm after, is it really possible? There are things in my life, it seems, I've been working on forever and I'm not making the progress that I want. And maybe you felt this tension too. And it's tempting to get frustrated and to give up. Is change even possible for me? Why am I even trying? So we're starting a new series, starting uh, right now, today, over the next five weeks, uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 12. So we're really focusing on this chapter of Romans. And in this chapter, it's written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote this amazing letter of Romans to the house churches that met in Rome in the first century AD. He reminds believers everywhere and always that yes, the gospel of Jesus changes us. It does. But that change is more than simply reading our Bibles and uh, reading our Bibles more and praying more. Now, those are good and important things, but there's more to our calling of a transformed life than just these habits. But to experience this new life, to experience this transformed life we're called to, we need more than just like a self-improvement project. Frankly, we need to start over. 
but we need to start from the right place. And that's what I want us to do today together. What is that? Where does change start? Where does this new life Jesus promises us, where does it begin? And if you have a Bible near you, turn to Romans uh, chapter 12. And we're going to look at just the first two verses here of this chapter, two tiny verses, where Paul gives us the answer. How do we begin to change? And let me just let the cat out of the bag. Here is Paul's answer. The answer is love. How do we change? Well, it starts with love. Only love can change you. Now, before we get into the text, I want you to just stop and and think with me how radical a statement that truly is. I mean, really take a minute and think about the self-help literature, the religious teaching all over the world. Does any of that start with love? Most of the advice you will get in life, even from the oldest religious traditions in human history, you will hear some version of, if you want to change, only you can change you. You have to do it. And that manifests in all these different ways, right? You need a better education to change. You need the right moral framework and thinking to change. You need the right habits to change. You need the right willpower to change. You need to make the right decisions to change. And listen, some of that is true to a certain extent along the way, but none of those things is a starting point because you actually can't change you. You can't. That's not a perfect summary of the book of Romans, but it's not far off. It's in the ballpark. You can't change you. And when you get to chapter 12, Paul begins this way. Listen, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. This is where he begins, the mercies of God. Paul's appeal to our transformation begins with God's mercy toward us. And this phrase in verse 1, mercies of God, it is the Greek translation of a Hebrew idea. And there's actually a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And whenever uh, the Hebrew word for love, rakamim, is translated into Greek, this phrase is used, the mercies of God. The mercies is how it's translated. There are several words in Hebrew for love. Rakamim is one of them, and it has a really specific nuance. What Paul has in mind here is God's tender, compassionate love. It's actually a maternal idea, rakamim. It's It's verbally related to the womb. So the idea here is a parental, compassionate, tender love of God for you. Paul says, I appeal to you on that basis to begin your journey of transformation in Christ, love. And here, you guys, is the problem with just dropping right into the middle of a letter in the middle of Paul's train of thought here in Romans. It's meant to be read all together because for 11 chapters, Paul has been laboring to show his readers exactly what the mercies of the love of God have been toward humanity for all of history. So just bear with me here. He opens the letter, chapter 1, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. This is who he's addressing. In Romans 1, God has given the gospel as the power of salvation to all who believe and has revealed himself in all that he's made because of his love for us. Chapter 2, God's justice shows no partiality because his love demands it. Romans 3, God remains both the, the judge of humanity and the justifier, the defender of sinners because he loves us. Romans 4, God shows us we cannot earn salvation. We cannot change ourselves. But we must learn to trust in his promise to save because 
He loves us. Romans 5, God made a way of peace with his enemies, us, because of love. Romans 6, he makes us free from sin. Chapter 7, he makes us free from death and decay. Uh, Romans 8, he gives us new life in his spirit. Romans 9, 10, and 11, God has saved the Jew and the Gentile both in Christ, all of it, because he loves us. This is, the, magna, this is the, the big idea of Romans, because only love, Paul says, can change you. This is the foundation of the Christian life and the good news that Jesus came to share. We are loved by God, and only that love can change us. Now, if you've been in church for a while, or you grew up in the church, or maybe you've just talked to Christians now and again, maybe this idea is not new to you. God loves me, right? You've heard, maybe heard that before. And it does sound really simple. It sounds really straightforward. But let me just take a minute because we all bring baggage to this concept of the love of God. We can say it, but what do we mean? So, for example, uh, many Christians who were trained in certain traditions or, or in certain churches, when we think of the good news that changes us in the gospel, we think primarily of a transaction. This is the metaphor that comes to our mind. When we say God loves me and he forgives me, what we mean is I bring my brokenness to God and Jesus died for that brokenness, that problem, and then I get his goodness in exchange. There's a transaction. And all of that, by the way, is true. But it's only part of the picture of God's love. But we often stop there, that metaphor, and we end up with a picture of God's love. And this is the best analogy I could come up with, is that God's love is basically like a bailout payment. It's like God comes to us and he's like an accountant and he's like, hey guys, listen, I don't know if you know this, but you are seriously in the red. You are in so much debt. But don't worry about all that bad stuff you did and all the bad stuff that you do because I'm going to pay for it. Here's some righteousness. Take it. Don't spend it all in one place. I'll see you when you're dead. Right? That, that's not God's love. It's not nearly enough. It's not merely a transaction. Right? God isn't dealing with our debt, that metaphor, just to deal with the debt. He's doing it so he can adopt us. He doesn't want just simply to forgive us. He wants us. He wants you in relationship with him. So we can bring all this like, theological baggage to this. We can also bring baggage uh, from our own backgrounds and experience. So we all know this, but our experience of love from our parents and our family of origin and our spouses for those of us who are married or our friends has a profound effect on how we see and experience God's love, how we interpret it. We can be afraid God will abandon us because that's our experience of love. We can be afraid he'll reject us. We can be nervous that he's always waiting for us to make a mistake. And all of that fear and anxiety can drive us back into a performance mindset because that's how we learned to cope with the ambiguity of our loving relationships around us. We say, look at me, God. Look how good I am. You can love me because I'm good. Or we can preemptively reject God. God, I don't want your love because the second I do, the second I trust you, you're going to leave me. You're going to let me down because that's what my parents did. That's what, that's what happened to me. That's what my spouse did. You'll leave me just like everybody else in my life, so I'm not even going to go there with you. That's real. We bring this to the table, but none of it's true. None of that's true. God's love isn't like any other love we have in our lives. This is what Paul is at pains to make clear 
only God's love can change because it's unlike anything else in our world. Think about this with me. This is why in every relational metaphor in the Bible, whenever the Bible tries to describe what is it like to relate to God, how does he think and feel about you, God is presented as the fulfillment, the perfection of that relationship. God is not just father. He's the perfect parent who doesn't mess up his kids with his own mess and hurt and pain and anger. He's the perfect spouse, right? We're the bride of Christ who never abandons you. He never turns his eye toward another. He always provides for you. He's the perfect friend who is at your side, who contends with you and for you in all things. He is unlike any other love in the world. And we are looking for that kind of love all our lives, whether we're conscious of it or not. We are looking for that. All of our attempts at self-improvement until we find rest in God's love are attempts to make ourselves more lovable to someone, to anyone out there. I love how Kurt Thompson puts this. He's a Christian author. He put it this way. He says, we are all born into this world looking for someone looking for us. That's perfect. That's exactly true. And listen, God's love, as Paul paints it here in this whole letter, listen to me, it is not a story of the human ascent of the mountain of religiosity, passing the test, defeating the evils, and getting to the divine hilltop, whatever it is, and saying at last, oh, holy divine one, I've been looking for you all my life, and here you are. That's, that's how the world tells the story. Right? How do I get up to where God is? How do I earn his or her or its attention? That is not the gospel story Paul is saying. That is not the love story Paul is painting. The gospel is the story of every human. And just read through Romans if you don't believe me. Every human, you and me, trapped in a dark prison of death and sin, wallowing in misery, unable to lift a finger to help ourselves or anyone else. And God comes down into our cell And he finds us and he tells us, I've been looking for you for all of eternity. That is the love of God. And that can change you. That's what I want to talk about here. Change is second to being loved. That is why Paul begins with the mercies of God. He says, because of the mercies of God. Listen again, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now again, we often think, first I'm going to change, and then I'll be worthy of love. This is the basic human logic. And this is where all of our efforts at self-improvement generally go to die. You cannot change in order to be loved. You will fall into the same trap over and over and over again. You can only change because you are secure and know that you are deeply loved. This is the brilliant, subversive wisdom of the gospel. This is the humbling and freeing truth that we cannot change ourselves, but we can be changed like God's love first. And this is true, think about it, of our experience as human beings. We've all seen or felt the power of that kind of love, as as Huey Lewis would put it, the power of love. I'm sorry, I had to do that. Okay, 
It reminds me of my kids and, and my wife. You know, my kids, when they get upset or they get hurt or they're throwing a tantrum, they often do not need an explanation first of what's going on or what the problem is. This is a trap I fall into sometimes as a parent. Sometimes uh, with my children, when something happens, I try to explain to them now what went wrong. Now, what have we learned? What, what can we do better next time? And that's, there's a place for that. But my wife, this is just intuitive for her. She, nine times out of ten, she starts with a hug. A reassurance that no matter what's happening, it's okay. But there's love here no matter what. That is powerful. That's, I can see it in my children. There's power to that. This is how God sees us. So many of us, and I do this, our default picture of God is that he's looking at our lives and he is shaking his head. Like, how could you do that again? What's wrong with you? He's disappointed. He's detached. This doesn't change anyone. No, God is, is right here for all of our failures and our victories, and none of them, neither of them, can make God love us more or less because he already loves us with everything he has. Enough to send his son to die in our place. So as believers... Before we even think about changing and transformation, we need to know that we're loved. We need to know it. We need to know it here. And we need to know it here to feel it, to experience it personally. And sometimes we forget that. There's a dichotomy there. And there's a story that illustrates this well. John Wesley was a great preacher of the 19th century. Um, He grew up, here's his background. He grew up in the church. He was a pastor He knew in his head everything that we've said so far. If you pulled him aside and asked him, hey, do you think God loves you? He'd have said, oh, of course. And he'd have quoted you chapter and verse. He would have known more about it here probably than you and I do. But then one day, he describes going to a meeting. It was basically like a church meeting. And in the meeting, they they were just reading from Romans. He was just listening. I think they read the whole letter. And here's what he said. He says, I felt my heart strangely warmed I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, John Wesley, if you don't know, he went on to found the Methodist movement, which changed the Western world forever. We we, we still feel his impact. But notice he didn't do all of that because he knew so much here. I mean, he did know a lot here, but that's not what changed him. But what changed him is he realized how much he was loved here. That was the moment he pointed back to and said, this is the change for me. And you guys, I needed this reminder recently. I will be honest, this is probably a few weeks ago now, a month ago now, I was really, really low emotionally. I was exhausted. I was depressed. I was anxious. You know, just like, everyone right now. And I I came to church. I came to the building to work on something. I don't even remember what it was. I was alone. There was no one else here. And I found myself just in the worship center. I like stopped what I was doing and I just wandered into the worship center. And there's a big cross right there, right behind the stage. And I found myself on the floor in front of that cross, just weeping and praying. And here's what happened. I kept trying to calm myself down and measure my words with God in prayer. And I don't know if you've ever done that. Pastors are the worst 
about that. We just go into pastor mode, right? It's like, I can't, don't say that. Think that through. We're the worst, sorry. So in the middle of this, right, this debate happening in my mind and heart about how to talk to God, I had this sense, this interruption in my prayer where God said to me, as best as I can understand him, it's okay not to be a pastor, Andrew. It's enough to be my son. That's powerful. Now, to be fair, that was happening in prayer. And so our disciplines play a role here. Okay, we, we participate in experiencing God's love and acceptance. But no prayer of mine could have touched me the way that that did. Because it was a reminder that I have a father. I have a pursuer. I have a friend who never leaves me alone and is okay with my junk. He's okay with that. I can bring that to him. And my heart and my attitude, it changed immediately. And, and listen, that was just a touch of God's power to change. Just a touch. We have access to that power and more by the love of God. That is the gospel promise. And only that love can change us. And it can change you. It can change you. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, Andrew, that's nice for you and for other people maybe in your church and other good people that I know in my life, but that is not for me. And if if you're there right now, I want to talk to you for a minute. Because perhaps you're watching and you're thinking, Andrew, if you really knew me, if you knew me, you would not say that I can change. There are things here that even God cannot handle. And I understand that. I understand that sentiment. But I want to tell you something. That is shame talking. That is not God. That is shame. And shame, which is this feeling that you aren't enough compared to everybody else, that you're not worthy, is perhaps the greatest enemy to receiving God's love. It's one of the favorite weapons of our enemy to use to drive us away from grace. And everyone is vulnerable to this. Christian, non-Christian, I don't care who you are. We're vulnerable to shame. So listen to me carefully now. First, Paul does not talk about the need for some people to be saved by grace through faith. Paul does not say that. He says everyone must be saved by God's love and forgiveness first. There are no good people and bad people in God's family. There are only saved people. That's it. So God doesn't compare us. So we let it go. Don't do that anymore. Second, and more importantly, perhaps even than that, the beauty of the gospel. And I want you to truly meditate on this. The beauty of the gospel is that there is nothing about you God does not already know. And he loves you anyway. I love how Pastor Tim Keller puts this. Um, he's retired now. He's a pastor in New York City. He put it this way. He said, To be loved and not known is celebrity and is actually miserable. Because deep down, even if you feel you're you're loved by a lot of people, you know deep down that people don't really know you. They love a version of you, a part of you, a presentation of you, but they don't really love you. Then he said, to be known and not loved is misery and is every person's worst nightmare. In fact, Most of our lives, most of our decisions, most of our actions are made to avoid this happening to us. We will do almost anything to avoid being known and rejected. 
It is our worst fear. But to be fully known and fully loved is the gospel. That's what it is. There is no shame in God's presence. Yes, there is sin and there's repentance and there's transformation. God doesn't leave us where we are, but we are never rejected when we put our faith in Jesus. Because when God sees us, he sees Jesus. That's, that's the deal. Now, you can try to run from God. You can hate him. You can ignore him. You can explain him away. You can do this life thing and the self-improvement thing on your own. You can do that, but he will never stop chasing you. Never. And I promise you, if you surrender to him, if you let him catch you, he'll never let you go. No matter who you are, you cannot change you. But this love, this gospel love, it can.